Hello, folks, and welcome back. This is the High Performance Human Podcast, and I am your host, Simon Ward. And normally each week, I'm joined by guests to share their knowledge and wisdom to help you on your journey to living longer, living healthier, and of course, improving your triathlon performance. But this week, it's a solo cast, so there is no guest, just me. Now, I'm going to embark on the first of a three podcast series, which I'll explain in just a moment. But if you look back through the archives, or if you've been listening for a year or two, you'll know that most autumns I do a podcast on what your winter training might look like. Now this year, I've tweaked it so that it's based around my high-performance human principles, which I've been talking about a lot more in the last few months. However, it would be fun to go back through the archives and see how much my approach has changed in the last three to four years. Probably not much, but if anyone cares to do this and spot some serious pivots, feel free to let me know what they are and I'll find something uh, interesting and fun for you from my bag of goodies to send through the post. So uh, let's see what you got on that score. Anyway, let's crack on with part one of the series. So my goal for this podcast series was to help simplify the approach to preparing for triathlon. Why would I want to do that? Well, I think that over the last few years, certainly in the time that I've been coaching, which that's more than a few years, that's 30 years, it's just become far too complex and complicated. And coaches like myself are probably to blame, at least in part, for some of this. Social media has its part to play in the blame as well, because if you search for how do I run faster or how do I swim faster or how do I increase my FTP, you'll get thousands of different hits, most of which have got a slightly different method. The problem with all of them, and particularly coaches and magazines that have something to sell, is that everyone's trying to create a secret source. And that often is based around using some new scientific formula or some new gadget, which is going to make life better and easier for you, or something like Strava, which has its place and has its benefits, but which I'm, whilst I do use it, I'm not a huge fan of Strava, is also to blame, all right? So what's happened is that there is a lot of money, time, and energy spent by athletes focusing on the small things that might give them a marginal gain. That's something else I'm irritated by, marginal gains. But maybe that'll be a grumpy old coach's podcast to to bitch about marginal gains. But for now, let's just say that too much time and energy and money spent focusing on the small things and ignoring the basics. I'm not saying that the small things don't have a place, but perhaps we shouldn't be worrying about these until we have the basics covered. And one example of this uh, a phrase that I might give is to focus on mowing the garden while your house is burning down okay now in more specific terms I would say that somebody's worrying about what running shoes they have yeah when they're only running once a week and thinking that having the right running shoes a lighter faster those that guarantee a four percent improvement when you wear them Worrying about which running shoes you have will somehow replace the fact that you're only running once a week. And actually, if you just focused on 
running three times a week and doing that consistently for the next three months, you probably find that you are running faster anyway in the current running shoes you've got. So that's a specific example. So in the next three weeks of podcasts, what I want to do is focus on what I think is most important. And the key principle is this. It's not just about training. You have to find a sweet spot in your life, right? And I emphasize the word your because everyone is different. However, whilst we are all different, we probably do have the same things in there. So we need to have enough energy to devote to our family. Yeah, if you come home from work and your children want some help with their homework or they want you to go and play football with them in the garden or take them to swimming and you've got just enough energy to collapse in front of the TV, then that's not going to be good for family relations, is it? Neither will it be good for your relationship with your partner if you haven't got enough energy to engage in fun, interesting conversation. What about your friends? They're not going to be too happy, are they, if you are forever tired because you've done your training and you can't get to see them or they can't get to see you. So you need to have the energy for your family, for your friends. If you're working, and that's most of us, and you're getting paid to work either by your customers if you're running uh, your own business or by your boss if you're working for a company, you need to turn up and have enough energy to be able to do the work that you're contracted to do. Otherwise, you might find that you're... um, Surplus to requirements. And of course, you need to find the energy or maintain the energy, have the energy to do the training that you have to do in order to satisfy your athletic goals. All right. So what does that mean? If you want to stay in the sweet spot, then you need to stay healthy and injury free, which will allow you to consistently get the work done. All right, consistently getting work done. And you have to do this by adequately fueling the body for life. So don't worry about what food am I getting that's going to fuel me for my run later on or my bike ride tomorrow. Think about the food that your body needs to maintain normal, healthy bodily functions, supplying glucose to the brain so you can think accurately and clearly. Supplying energy to your vital organs so they can continue to function in the background so you can do the things that you want to do. And you also need to provide fuel for repair. And that's not just repair from training. That's repair from normal daily functions. You also need to have effective recovery. And again, not just effective recovery from training, but effective recovery from the stresses and strains of your day. So that's time to relax. Time to sleep. Time to allow the body to undergo its normal repair processes. I'll come on to all of these in more detail later on. But just to summarize how the three podcasts will be laid out over the next few weeks, and in what I feel is the order of high-performance human priority, today we're going to be covering sleep, recovery, and nutrition because they're the fundamentals They are the foundations for everything else that you do in your life, regardless of what events you're doing or how much training you're engaged in or hoping to do. After that, we're going to talk about mobility and strength because as a human being, you need good 
mobility and strength in order to be able to function effectively. Never mind training. And you'll hear me say this a lot. Never mind training. Think of yourself as a human being. But I do think that a lot of people put themselves as an athlete first and forget about the human being side. So I want you to emphasize that first. Being a healthy human comes higher up in the list of priorities than being a healthy athlete. Actually, if you're not a healthy human, you'll never be the best athlete you can be. So that's mobility and strength is in podcast two. And in podcast three, we're going to look a bit deeper into some ways of simplifying the whole sort of jumble of information around training. So let's start off on sleep. So let and start off with the key principles that we're trying to achieve. The first thing, and I've said this many times, there's been podcasts that I've done on sleep, on recovery, on training. So I make no apologies for repeating the fact that sleep is the number one and probably two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, etc. recovery tool. Quite frankly, there is little point in spending money on other fancy recovery items if you're not maximizing your sleep. So yes, you can buy Norma Tech boots. Yes, you can buy compression tights compression garments you can buy one of those lovely theraguns that everybody's got at the moment but you'll get better recovery if you just pay some attention to your sleep now you spend one third of your life asleep so it pays huge dividends to do as much as you can to improve improve the sleep you get every night And that starts with being consistent. As much as possible, have the same time for lights out and alarm every day, even at the weekends. I know people like to sleep in at the weekends, but actually it's far better for your circadian rhythms if you try and go to bed and get up at the same times every single day. Now, the next thing that's important is to focus on sleep opportunity. So you can't control what happens when you're asleep. But what you can do is everything before and after to influence what happens while you're asleep. So we call these pre and post sleep routines. But in terms of sleep opportunity, I would suggest that you need to aim for at least eight hours sleep opportunity per night. I'll let you do the maths and I'm aware and appreciate the fact that there will be people listening who are larks and like to get up early and like to go to bed early. And there are people whose chronotype is an owl and you like to go to bed late and sleep in late and Sometimes we can't do anything about that. And I don't wish to encourage you to change that. But it's important for you to understand what your chronotype is first. What I would say, though, is that deep sleep, which is the deepest of all sleep, level four, slow wave sleep, sometimes referred to as those two different things, happen most between the hours of 10 p.m. and 2 a.m. And during this time, 95% of your daily human growth hormone is produced. And as an athlete, that is 
the substance that you need to help repair your muscles. So muscle repair takes place during deep sleep with human growth hormone and is best accessed between 10 p.m. and 2 a.m. And there's a reason that you'll find a lot of elite athletes go to bed at 9 to 9.30. The other reason is probably that they need to get up. Certainly triathletes usually get up so they can swim early to get the sessions in that they do. So those are the key principles that you're aiming for. I'll talk about gadgets and sleep trackers in a moment. But what I would say is that I've been using the Whoop. You've probably heard me talk about this, and this is not a sales pitch for Whoop. Although, if you are interested in purchasing one, I do have a discount code that will give you a free month at the beginning of your subscription. But, and whilst I am, uh, let's say I am, uh, maybe I'm an ambassador for Whoop. I'm not trying to sell you on a Whoop. What I'm going to tell you is that when I've been wearing mine for the last five years and I've looked at my sleep, when I'm in bed for eight hours, I usually get somewhere between six and a half and seven hours sleep per night. Sometimes it's a little bit more than seven hours. Sometimes it's a little bit less than six and a half. But it's usually between six and a half to seven, which means that when I'm in bed for eight hours, there's probably an hour of that time at least when I'm actually awake. And that might be just sort of a couple of minutes when I turn over um, and shuffle to find another position. Maybe it's more than a couple of minutes if I wake up, go to the bathroom, come back and then spend five minutes going back to sleep. But all of those little disturbances add up. So if you're thinking you go to bed at 10 p.m. and you get up at 6 a.m. and you're getting eight hours sleep a night, I can tell you that that's most unlikely and you're more likely to be getting six and a half to seven hours of sleep a night. Now let's move on to pre-sleep routines then. So arguably, this is what you do in the evening to try to ensure that you can make the most out of your sleep opportunity. Some of these things work and some don't, and it will differ between individuals. You may also think as you're listening to this, well, that doesn't work for me because, and I I appreciate that. And if it's not going to work for you because of that, then that's fine. So there'll be people who, who are listening, who are working shift patterns so they may only be able to do some of these things on certain days there are some people who work nights permanently okay so let's say this is for the majority of people who work a conventional daytime shift somewhere between the hours of eight in the morning till six at night they're in no order of priority these but just things that you can try. Firstly, if you exercise late in the day, and certainly within two to three hours before your, what we'll call lights out, when you get into bed and you turn the light out and you put your head on the pillow and start trying to go to sleep. So that's lights out. If you exercise in the two to three hours before lights out, there's a really strong possibility that that's going to impact your sleep and your ability to sleep and you might say well I do train in the evening maybe you go to a club swim session or a club track session and often those are 7 till 8 p.m and then you know if I'm saying you need to go to bed at 10 
p.m. and you've got to get home and have some food and that makes it really difficult to follow this schedule. I appreciate that. Um, but exercise is a stressor. A stressor is part of the sympathetic nervous system, which is when you are um, in the fight or flight mode and you're producing adrenaline and cortisol. And those are things that tend to stop you getting to sleep as easily. So, yeah, I hear you if you are saying that you need to train in the evening because that's the only time you could train. But please think about that as how it affects your sleep and whether it's possible to make some adjustments. Evening meals. Where possible, eat your evening meal two to three hours before lights out. So if you, again, if you're putting the lights out at 10, try to finish your evening meal by 8 o'clock at the latest, maybe better by 7 o'clock. That gives you food time to digest. If it's still digesting when you go to sleep or if you've had a big meal and you're still feeling comfortable, then that there's a good probability that that is going to impact on your quality of sleep. Now, alcohol. I know a lot of people like to have a drink in the evening. What I've discovered is that if I drink red wine and I have a glass early in the evening, it doesn't really impact my sleep much. But if I have a glass later on in the evening, maybe nine o'clock before I turn in at 10, then it tends to have an impact on my sleep. My deep sleep isn't accessible as easily. I tend to have less of that. I tend to take a bit longer to drop off to sleep. My sleep tends to be a bit more disturbed. Now, I found all that out from using the whoop tracker. So that's led to a behavioral change. And we'll come on to something. We'll come on to that in a moment. Um, also, different alcohols. Now, I've learned from different people who track their sleep that different alcohols have different effects on different people. So some people are okay with red wine, but not white wine. Some people are okay with whiskey, but not clear spirits. Some people are okay with beer. Some types of beer, maybe they're drinking an independent pale ale rather than a lager. So it differs between different people. But for most people, if you're going to drink alcohol nearer to bedtime, then it's probably going to have an impact on your sleep. And if you have a lot to drink, you may say, yeah, but I always drop off to sleep. But there's a good chance that that is just an alcohol-induced sleep. It's not really restful deep sleep. And that's the reason why you feel tired when you wake up after you've had what we call a skinful. Now, the other drink or other elements of drinking or drinks that can affect your sleep is caffeine. Now, again, there are different people with different metabolisms and some people can uh, drink caffeine any time of the day and it doesn't seem to affect them. But for the majority of people, caffeine does have a negative impact on your sleep. And so reducing your caffeine intake in the afternoon can be a big help in getting to sleep. Now, at this point, it's worth saying that there's a cycle here because if you're tired, you might feel that you need caffeine and sugar in the afternoon to keep you awake so you can concentrate. But then that leads to you not being able to sleep in the evening. So the next day you wake up tired again. So at some point you're going to have to break the cycle. And it's probably easiest to break the cycle by reducing your caffeine intake and then helping you get some sleep. So you wake up the next day feeling fresher, etc., etc. But the majority of people that I know that have reduced their caffeine intake in the afternoon, so particularly after midday, have found that they have a positive benefit for their sleep. 
So please just be thinking about that. That includes drinking things like green tea. There's a caffeine content to green tea. Normal tea has caffeine in as well. And there's also caffeine in some soft drinks, particularly the Coke-based drinks. So please be thinking about the sources of caffeine with the drinks that you're consuming. Other things that you might find help. Taking a warm shower just before bedtime encourages the body to then activate its sort of own temperature gauge and make you feel cooler. But you can also try a cold shower. It just might make you feel a bit more comfortable. Something that I do find is hugely beneficial is to try and disconnect from work. I know a lot of people work in the evenings or they might bring work home with them in the evenings or they If you're a student, you might use that as a time to get your homework done. But if you are tied to your phone or your computer and you're answering work emails and you've got colleagues or a boss or customers who are prone to sending you emails late at night, then because of the fact that your mind is on work and your mind is starting to were a bit faster when it should be relaxing, you might find that those things are on your mind, particularly if you get a a distressing or a confusing or um, some other email that sort of sets your heart rate racing. That's going to be on your mind as you go to bed. That's going to impact your sleep. So again, a strategy we found is if, if, if we can get people to disconnect from work early in the evening and turn off their work email, then that really helps with sleep. Now, if you have colleagues or um, superiors who are sending you, bosses who are sending you emails that late at night, that's probably because you've responded to them and that means that they think you're going to respond to them and so they'll continue to send them. So you you have to learn to train people not to send you them. I mean, there's no no requirement for you to respond to an email at 9 p.m., surely. And if there is, then there's something wrong with the type of work you're doing or the way in which your work system works. is operating. So I would strongly recommend that you try to figure that one out. Um, I also have a lot of people who've disconnected work emails from their phone. So if they don't, if they leave the office and their work emails don't come through to the phone, then they're not bothered by work stuff in the evening. And that's been a real big revelation to them. If you work for yourself and I work for myself as well, and I've done that for 30 years, and I know it's a lot more difficult, but still, customers know that you're not going to be doing stuff nine o'clock at night. They might take a chance and email you. I know if you're a coach, you might get somebody um, emailing you saying, oh, my power was down on my training session today, but you really don't have to do anything about that until the next morning. And actually, if you do, again, if you do respond, that's just encouraging people to continue with that bad behavior. So, it's, it's within your hands to do something about it. Now, while we're talking about looking at your emails, you're going to be looking at them on your phone or on your iPad or on your computer. And when you look at gadgets like this, as well as most smart TVs, there's going to be blue light, significant quantities of blue light emitted from those screens and being absorbed by your eyes. And that blue light sets the brain waves and patterns going and can interfere with sleep. So, firstly the best recommendation is to just disconnect from that. Your mind will stop working, you'll be more relaxed, and you won't be getting the blue light. If you are going to look at your computer or your iPad and you're going to be reading things on there, 
um, or maybe you're doing fun things, but it's on your iPad, then one thing you could try is purchasing a pair of blue light blocking glasses. That helps to emit those blue light waves, and that can help with brainwave patterns. So that might be something you want to try, but where possible, just disconnect from computers earlier on in the evening. And then the other thing that I personally have found really beneficial, and I know lots of other people have, is to read before bedtime. Now, you definitely don't want to read something like Stephen King, I don't think, because that would just set your heart rate racing and produce some cortisol. So a light fiction book, maybe definitely not a work book, but something like maybe a magazine, it's just going to set you off being drowsy. You may even fall asleep while you're reading, and that's not a bad thing. Um, I've found that anywhere from 5 to 30 minutes before lights out really helps me go straight off to sleep as soon as the room's gone dark. So we talked about sleep tracking earlier. You can use lots of gadgets to sleep. Most Garmin's, most Sunto watches now, if you wear them, will track your sleep. But please remember that these watches are designed for tracking your exercise, not your sleep. So that's a secondary purpose. Um, It's become common now, so they're adding that as a feature. However, they haven't really been designed for that function. So if you're going to track your sleep and you want to do it properly, try to find a device that's been designed for that. Now, the two best ones on the market, I've mentioned one earlier, is the Whoop, which is a wrist strap you wear. It does measure heart rate and activity levels, but there's no face on it. So you can't see what your heart rate is. You can't see what your... um, effort levels are um, the data is just sent from the gadget to your phone but it's not something you can seal in real time um, the alternative to that is an aura ring so it just depends how you like to if, if you're comfortable wearing a ring on your finger um, that might be one thing some people i know can't wear them for work or, or find it uncomfortable to wear them for work um, but maybe you don't like wearing a wristband although the new whoop stuff um is way more wearable and they've designed uh, for females they've designed the the, the whoop um, unit to be worn in a bra strap they've designed it to be worn on the hip in a pocket of a pair of shorts um, even in the band of some underpants now so um, they are moving to more um, usable wearables so these have been designed to measure sleep now i know there's an argument about how accurate they are whoop have plenty of information on their website and i think aura do to show that they've had the information validated independently by universities and and laboratories where they're focused on gathering sleep data um so uh, you know you're welcome to go and check that out i'll see if i can find some links for you to um to put in the show notes so you can go and check it out but what i would say is all of these gadgets including the apps you can get on your smartphone that sits by the bed um will give you information which if you track it and look at behaviors um, before bedtime, so you need to you need to log some metrics like, okay, before this night's sleep, did I drink alcohol? When did I drink alcohol? What time of alcohol, did, uh, what type of alcohol did I drink? Um, did I exercise? If so, what exercise was it? Um, you know, was it running, swimming or cycling? Was it, was it yoga or something else more gentle? Um, if you if you ate before sleep, what time did you eat? And what did you eat? Because that will have an impact. So all of those things, you need to track them. And then you can look at the sleep data. And over time, you'll be able to see that on most of the times when you had um, alcohol early in the evening, you slept better. On the times when you had alcohol closer to bedtime, you slept worse. So then you can create some behavioral changes about what you do in the evening before you go to bed. 
Whoop recently did a, um, some research based on recovering from a marathon. And one of the elements of that article was to track modalities. So they asked people to track things like uh, breathing, you know, like yoga breathing before bedtime, meditation before bedtime, yoga before bedtime, um, taking CBD oil either through droplets going under the tongue or um, applied to the skin as a topical lotion. They looked at their, well, they looked at a whole host of different modalities and then they got people to record them every day. And then from there, they're able to track the data. And then the, the artificial intelligence system will be able to say, you know, on 10 of the occasions when you use CBD, you recovered better. So now you can, you can do that to find out what sort of recovery methods work for you. That's a, that's a fair amount of data tracking, but I know that there are some people who like to track the data that they get from their Garmin watch and that gets uploaded to Training Peaks. So if you're going to track training data and look for changes in fitness, why wouldn't you look for benefits that can be had from your recovery as well, knowing that sleep is the best recovery? Okay. Now, when you wake up in the morning, most people just get up, go in the bathroom, do what they have to do, and then get on with the day. But Having a post-sleep routine can be just as important in ensuring that you get a good night's sleep. In fact, some argue that this part of the day is most important. And one of the main things that is considered important by sleep experts is to get some light into your eyes early on. So natural light is best. So if you go out and it's a sunny morning and you get some sunlight in there, that can help to set the body's circadian rhythms I think, if I'm stand to be corrected, that this helps with the production of serotonin, which is produced during the day, but then helps the production of melatonin in the evening, which helps with your sleep. So getting some early daylight really helps. If you live in the Northern Hemisphere, and as we're doing this podcast in October, we're just about to come to the time when the clocks are about to change and the daylight in the morning and in the evening is, is you know, getting shorter and shorter. So mornings are darker, evenings are darker. So natural light isn't readily accessible for a lot of people. So the alternative is to have one of these daylight lamps. I'll put a couple of links in. I don't have any associations with these, but I do know people have used them. And daylight lamps can give you some... It's not natural light, but it's as close to natural light as possible. But... One of the other things you can do is if you work in an office or if you tend to work indoors all day is to get outside, and particularly when it's when it's sunny or when it's the brightest part of the day, sort of around noon, get outside and just get yourself five or ten minutes of fresh air and daylight and that'll be enough just to reset. But generally, if it's sunny in the morning, 30 to 45 minutes. So if you're riding your bike in the winter and it's a sunny day, try to ride for the first 30 to 40 minutes without your sunglasses on. So you can absorb some of that light directly into your eyes. Another thing, alarm clocks. Now, if you're deep asleep and the alarm goes off, it can set your heart rate racing, can't it? So what about a silent alarm? Now, some watches will vibrate if you wear them. And if you're tracking your sleep, then you will be wearing something on your wrist. So you can set a silent alarm. So it's sort of gently vibrating on your wrist. It's not quite as much of a shock or... You can get one of these lamps that mimics the rising of the sun. Now, in the summer, when the sun in the UK certainly starts to rise at sort of 4 to 4.30, then you shouldn't need one. But in the winter, 
of course, as we just talked about, the sunlight's not going to start coming through until nine o'clock in those dark winter days. So maybe a daylight lamp that gently starts to get brighter and brighter will help you to wake up more gently and slowly. I know a lot of people have used these and they say they're a much more pleasant way to wake up. Next thing. Now, I've already said that I think you should be disconnecting from your phones early in the evening and stopping thinking about work and and just emails and Facebook and all that other stuff. And I know that's going to be a challenge. I think this next suggestion is going to be even more of a challenge. And in fact, if I get any emails telling me that this is impossible, these are probably some of these things are impossible. Then this is the one that's going to be most likely to be the headline in the first 60 minutes of your day. How about trying to avoid looking at your phone? I've left a little pause there because I wanted you to absorb that. And I'm going to repeat it again. For the first 60 minutes of your day, avoid looking at your phone. Let me ask you this. If you get up at 7 a.m., what is so important to you that you have to look at that phone immediately? I mean, surely it can't be anything on Facebook because that's just social media. It doesn't need an urgent response, does it? That's not affecting your life in any way. It can't be anything on the BBC News channel or the BBC Sports thing because that can wait as well. And surely nobody in their right mind, apart from maybe the people who send you emails at 9pm, but surely nobody in their right mind is going to be expecting you to respond to an email before your normal working hours. And for most people, I don't expect that you'll be getting up and starting work within an hour of waking up. So please, if you can enlighten me, if this is your pattern of living, on what is so important in turning your phone on and becoming immersed in it pretty much the moment you wake up. Now, this if you do this, it's not unusual. I don't know what the numbers are in the UK, but I would imagine they're pretty similar to America. And the percentage of people who reach for their phone and start swiping through Instagram and TikTok and Facebook and all those other social media channels, as well as the normal news outlets, is 84%. That's a staggering number of people. And, of course, we know if we've watched some of those TV documentaries that... Facebook and Instagram have algorithms that are designed to suck you in and look at things on your phone. But really, please try to avoid looking at that. Let yourself wake up naturally. And instead of looking at your phone, and you may need to actually go into your phone to do this, my thing is, obviously, I turn my alarm off on my phone. Then I I do get up and I spend about 15 minutes doing my teeth and doing some stretching. Then I go downstairs. I turn my little speaker on, my mega boom speaker. I open up Spotify and I put on some very gentle jazz music. And that's it then. Phone goes face down and I get on with my morning stretching. Now that's my next suggestion is to you take some gentle exercise. Go for a walk. That will tick two boxes, of course, because you'll be getting some natural daylight You could do some yoga, and if it's a nice warm day, if you're in the summer, then you could go and do that out in the garden or in the backyard. You could do some stretching indoors. And when we come on to the next podcast, 
where we talk about mobility, I'll be encouraging you to try to get into a routine of morning mobility and stretching. So some gentle exercise just to wake up. The other thing I'm going to recommend here is just to wait a while for that first caffeine hit. I mean, if you need that first thing in the morning, you need to look at your addiction to that caffeine thing. I don't think it's necessary. In the same way that looking at your phone first and then spending an hour swiping through all those things is something you do. Reaching for the coffee pot first thing in the morning is just another habit. And if it's a habit that you have developed, then it's a habit you can break. So wait a while for the caffeine. By all means, have a drink. I like to have a cup of peppermint tea or a cup of robush, which is non-caffeinated. That helps with my morning hydration. But you, you, you can have a glass of water as well. You can have a glass of milk, whatever you like. But just wait a while for the caffeine. Okay, get into a nice post-sleep routine. Spend the first hour of the day having some me time. Yeah, you. once the day started, it's going to be very difficult to get time for yourself if you live a busy life and you've got people wanting a piece of you. So why not do it first thing in the morning? Now, I know, I know some of you have got children and you're going to tell me that the kids are on go, go, go from the moment they get up. I understand that. But that's not everybody listening, is it? Not all of you have children around the house who, for whom you have to pander to. And maybe maybe there's a way in which you can train your kids to be self-sufficient. Obviously, if they're not three or four or five, but if they're 15 or 16, they don't need you. They want their independence when it matters to them. So teach them to have their independence when it matters to you as well. Now, that's spoken by somebody who doesn't have any children. So you're probably sitting there going, what the hell does he know? Well, I do know that lots of the people I've worked with over the years have had children, and I do know that there are often solutions. All right. So I'm not totally ignorant of this situation, but also I am not totally unappreciative of your situation. But what I'm saying is nothing is without a solution if you look for it hard enough and if you really want it. That's all I'm saying. So please don't shoot me down and say you have no idea. Okay, one final thing on sleep. Your sleep environment. So we talked about things that you can do to try to ensure that you make the most of that sleep opportunity. And sleep environment is another. Now, if you ever listen to any of the stuff that they've talked about with Team Sky or now known as Team Ineos, you might have seen documentaries where they talk about how they created individual sleep environments for every rider when they go on tour. They've got... Each rider has their own personalized pillows and duvets and mattress toppers to provide them with the ultimate comfort. They have their own sheets that they prefer. All right. So those are several things that you could try. What's the quality of your mattress? What duvet is best for you? You don't want it to be too cold. You don't want it to be too hot. If you have allergies, then you definitely want something that's hypoallergenic. What sort of pillows do you like? If you wake up in the morning with a stiff neck, then maybe your pillows aren't right. Too hard, too soft. You're going to be tossing and turning all night. That's going to create disturbances. That's going to mean you're getting light sleep rather than deep sleep. Maybe you need a mattress topper. Or maybe you need a new mattress. They may all have a positive impact if you find the right ones for you. Other things that most experts agree on, create a room is as dark as possible. 
I wouldn't go so far as to get some masking tape and tape the curtains down so it was completely blacked out. I would go so far as to suggest that you could buy blackout blinds and curtains that have um, a lining on the window side that minimize the light. There might still be some light creeping around the edges and it will also depend on whether you live in the country or whether you live in a, an area where there's bright street lights, but you can still do stuff yourself to create a darker atmosphere. And you could also wear an eye mask. Now, there's plenty to choose from out there. Again, I would suggest you try them out and find one that's comfortable because if, if you're wearing one, it's going to wake you up every time you move your head, then that's going to be counterproductive. Other things the experts are aligned on is room temperature, generally around 15 to 16 degrees. If it's too cold, that will keep you awake. If it's too warm, you'll be tossing and turning. You can change your duvet thickness between the seasons to help with the temperature of the bed. You can maybe have the windows open, but again, if you're living somewhere where it's really noisy and there's a lot of ambient noise, that might disturb your sleep. You can use a fan. Or you can use on these little chill mattresses that um, you can put under your mattress to keep the bed cool. And you can, and for those of you who are interested in that and have partners who like it really warm and you want it really cool, then you can get one that only works on half of the bed. Okay, so that's the chill pad. I'll put a uh, link to that in the show notes. And again, I've not tried one, but I do know people who have and they are very complimentary about it. The final thing that I would suggest, and again, the experts are aligned on that, is bedrooms should be for sex and sleeping, and that's it, all right? They're not for working. If you live in a one-bedroom or a, a bed-sit where your bed's in the corner of the room and you've got a telly in the corner and you've got a computer there, what I would suggest for you is to make sure those gadgets are completely turned off. You definitely don't want those little standby lights um, shining because those uh, those do tend to shine towards your head if they're if they're in that direct line and that will get into your hypothalamus and affect your sleep waves and there has been some research on that so i normally recommend that people get rid of get rid of the electronics in the room tv computer and phone just move it all to a different place so we talked about sleep being the best form of recovery let me talk about some of the other things firstly the body has two hormonal systems. I mentioned them briefly before. The sympathetic is known as fight or flight. It's when you produce adrenaline and cortisol. It's what causes you to suddenly get up and ready if something's happened. In ancestral times, when Neanderthal man was around, he might see a saber-toothed tiger. So he needed some adrenaline either to go kill it or to run away. You might get surges of adrenaline at work when you're under a deadline or when the phone rings and it's a customer that's angry with you or has got a big order so that same fight or flight production of adrenaline can happen when you're watching uh, getting comfortable in an evening get ready for bed and then you see an email from an angry customer which is why you should turn your phone off the alternative to sympathetic is parasympathetic which is rest and digest the problem is now that in modern life we're nearly always connected We've talked enough about phones and being on from the moment you wake up to the moment you go to bed. That's two thirds of your waking. Well, that's two thirds of your day and that's all your waking day. So you never get away from that. So we need to get away from this pattern. It's really, really important for your health. 
So it's important to disconnect regularly and get into the rest and digest, sort of rest and relax type of mentality. Having spare time in your day, a moment when you can put your feet up and just relax. There's nothing wrong with that and there's nothing to feel guilty about. But the number of athletes I talk to and I ask, what do you do if you've got spare time in the day? And they go, oh, I feel guilty. I try to find something to do. A lot of people don't like that. But that, again, is a learned behavior from somewhere. But if you can try to reverse that, you will find it has a profound impact on your mental and physical health. You'll reduce your stress in your life. You'll end up with better recovery and better sleep. And that ultimately will be better for your triathlon performance. So how do you do that? Well, there's several ways. You can do meditation. You can do breathing exercises. You can do them formally. Meditation, you can follow something like Headspace. And you sit down for 10 to 15 minutes and you follow the instruction. You just breathe and sort of just just let the thoughts flow in your mind. You can do some formal yoga breathing. But you can also practice meditation while you're out exercising. If you take your... Uh, If you go out for a run and you run in the woods, you leave your phone at home, you don't have any music there, and you just focus on your breathing, focus on your running, that in itself is a form of meditation. You can also do meditation in many different places. It doesn't have to be while you are, doesn't have to be while you are um, sitting in an armchair, fully relaxed. If you practice it, you can easily, let's say while you're waiting in a queue at a shop, supermarket, if you're in a traffic jam, Just sit there and do some breathing for a minute. You might also find that that reduces your anxiety and your sort of frustration with being stuck there and not moving. Now, there are other recovery gadgets out there. Um, Christy Ashwanden wrote a book. I can't remember the title now, but she was on a podcast with me and she explored a lot of these um, recovery gadgets. And a lot of them actually don't have any real meaningful difference. However, we need to remember the placebo effect, don't we? If you think that it's making a difference, then it probably is, even if it's just helping you to be more relaxed about something. So I'll pick one that's very common, the use of compression socks. Now, a lot of people feel that these help them to avoid injury while they're running. I'm not so sure that that's true, but if they think it is, then it, and it's working for them, then I can't argue with that. But the evidence doesn't point to it. Um, they may help you to recover when you're resting after you've done a hard run. Um, the recovery tights started and recovery socks started in hospitals when people had had operations. But remember that most of those people are bed bound. So they can't move. If you're walking, then there is a process called venous return where the action of the muscles contracting squeezes the blood that's around the ankles up through the veins back towards the heart. And those veins have one way valves. So once the blood's gone through, it doesn't go back. So as long as you keep moving and you keep engaging in muscle contraction, the blood keeps getting pushed further and further up from the calves up the thighs and back into the main circulatory system so it goes back to the heart. So actually, if you go for a recovery walk and you keep moving around, then the blood and and that lactic acid that you've created during training will be naturally returned to the heart. And so you perhaps don't need compression socks. And you probably don't need those Normatec boots either 
because all that's doing is squeezing the muscles to get the blood back. So I'm not saying that there isn't a place for compression socks. I'm not saying that there isn't a place for Normatec boots, if you can afford them. I'm not saying that there isn't a place for the Theragun, nice as they are. I'm not saying that um, there are other things that people feel help them recover, like ice baths. And sometimes ice baths can help with too much recovery. So you need to be careful there as well. And I'm not saying uh, um, processes like hot and cold. So going in the sauna and then having a cold shower and alternating between that for 20, 30 minutes. I'm not saying that any of those don't have a process. But often a lot of these things are helping you to relax. And relaxation is what brings on that parasympathetic nervous system activation. And that helps you get into the rest and digest mode. And then you recover more. Okay. So going back to my first principle, concentrate on the basics. Just allow yourself to disconnect and get into the parasympathetic system somehow. Um, and then you might find that you're relaxing and recovering a bit more. Okay. Now tied in with um, recovery is nutrition. Now nutrition is a massive subject and it's become increasingly polarized. So just recently... I didn't have a conversation with somebody who was a carnivore, but I mentioned that he moved more towards carnivore because of realizing that lots of vegetables were causing him to have stomach distress. And the number of angry emails I got was huge. Well, actually, it wasn't huge. I got two or three, but it was way bigger than the number of angry emails I got when I featured the vegans and the vegetarians. The point here is not to call out either side. It's just to say that when people are invested in a nutrition philosophy, often it's black and white. It's like, yes, I'm a vegan. And if you're engaged in carnivore or keto, you're an idiot, right? And then I'm involved in keto and it's the best thing. And if you eat carbs, you're a fool, right? That's not true. And I want to put a stop to that right now. What I'm going to say is this. Bad diets and fancy stuff like fasted training are fine, but they're probably best left until you've mastered the basics. And if that sounds familiar, that's because we talked about that earlier, didn't we? Get the basics right before you start with the clever stuff. Because those clever things are a long way down the list of priorities. And if we're going to talk about nutrition, what I would say is find what works for you. Let's not have any of this, my way works, your way doesn't. If it works for you, even if the research would suggest otherwise, then that's great. I can't argue with that. But before you get to that of trying to work out if there's a particular diet that's going to take you closer to your goals, focus on the basics first and these are some of the basics that most of the experts are aligned with number one eat real food if it comes in a tin a box a carton a carrier bag then it's been processed human hands have had some part to play in altering that food from the way it was picked from the tree plucked from the ground or caught or killed and that means it's been processed if you eat real food, you'll be in a far better position to avoid the additives that modern society has created. 
Number two, avoid refined sugars. I'm not saying you cut them out of your diet completely. A previous guest on this show, Dr. Phil Maffetone, says you should cut them all out. I'm not sure I agree with him there. But I do think that we all consume far too many refined sugars and we could cut a lot of them out. If your treat of the week is to have a cheesecake or a bit of carrot cake when you're on your Sunday ride with your mates, that's fine. But I don't think you need to do that every day on top of the chocolate bar you might have in the afternoon, the bagels or cereals that you have for your breakfast, etc., etc. Because that's just too many. So we can reduce refined sugars. We can reduce the processed foods. And something we haven't talked about much and something I want to get an expert on uh, to the show to talk about is industrially produced cooking oils that are a, a little bit carcinogenic. Okay. If anyone's, by the way, if anyone is an expert on this or knows somebody who is, please put them in touch because I'd like to have them on the show to talk about that particular subject. Next thing, remember, you eat food, not nutrients. We're having a meal. Now, the meal may be made up of items that have carbohydrates and protein and fats in, but you're eating food. You're a human being. We eat food in front of us. So remember that you're eating food and you're making meals and they need to be enjoyable. But also remember, it's not necessary. I mean, we have variety, but it's not necessary to entertain yourself. There's a lot of people in the world who eat the, eat the same things all the time. Carbohydrates, right? If you're on keto, please don't switch off now. Just because I mentioned the word carbohydrates, right? It doesn't mean I'm a bad person. It doesn't mean you have to put me in that category of heretic. Just listen for a moment, please. Carbohydrates are your friend. There's nothing wrong with carbohydrates. They're one of the three macronutrients that the body needs at certain times in order to continue performing effectively. It's the easiest way for the body to convert food into glycogen, which is then converted into energy for us to use. And as athletes, that's quite important. I would say that people... Um, and endurance athletes probably eat way too many carbohydrates. And I'll come on to that in just a moment. So I say as long as you eat the right type, and that might go right back to what I just said about eating processed foods versus real food. Moving on from carbohydrates, protein. Most athletes are not eating enough protein. And that particularly goes for the older athletes. So somewhere between one and a half to two grams of protein per kilogram of body weight. So I weigh 80 kilos, which means I need somewhere between 120 and 160 grams per day. A chicken breast is probably around 30 grams of protein. Bearing in mind that you're probably not going to absorb all of that protein in, in digestion. That's five chicken breasts a day. I'm definitely not eating that much. And if you don't have much protein for your breakfast or your lunch, you're going to have to eat an awful lot in order to maintain your um, requirement. So supplement if you have to with whey protein, as long as it's of a good source. Okay, but find out what the best sources of protein are for you. I'll come back to that in a moment. One failing that we find with lots of athletes is that they, yes, they know what they should be eating they're up to speed on the types of foods, but they're just not planning ahead and they're not preparing in advance. So you have to work out what foods you need in line with the training you're doing for next week, in line with your travel um, 
requirements for the week, you know, your accessibility to cooking facilities and preparation facilities. And sometimes you're going to have to make food in advance. If you don't do this, then you are hostage to whatever's available. And often whatever's available isn't what you need as a high-performing athlete. So you end up eating subpar food and slowly that leads to subpar performances. Finally, we're not trying to minimize our food intake. Actually, I'm going to offer up a different philosophy. Try to eat as much food as you possibly can in line with the goals and and, um, outlines that I've just mentioned without gaining any weight. That way, you'll be getting the right food in for your body. If you're trying to cut calories and training hard, that's really only got one outcome and it's not good in the long run. So your goal, eat as much food as possible without gaining weight. Let's talk about nutrition and training. Often I hear people saying, yeah, I need a sports nutritionist. No, you don't. I'm sorry if you're a sports nutritionist and you're listening to this and you're thinking that I'm restricting your business. That's not true. There are lots of people who have Um, issues that require solutions and that's where you as an expert come in but actually I think far too much emphasis is put on sports nutrition as if it's separate from normal nutrition often it's not it's a very simple process and once again what we're trying to do is get somebody to come in to make sense of our chaotic lives and if we applied some basic principles we wouldn't need a sports nutritionist now again Sports nutritionist for people who have peculiar sets of problems, that's great. Yeah. And maybe you have a particular event where you're confused and you don't know what you should be doing. And that's fine too. You want somebody to help you with the structure. But a lot of the times there are some simple processes that you can apply that you could do yourself. And then the next question is, well, when do I really need sports nutrition? In training, what do you need it for? I don't think that if you're swimming one hour per session, and there aren't many people that do longer than that, I don't think you really need any sports nutrition for that within that session. You definitely don't need to have a heavily laden water bottle full of carbohydrates. Yeah, particularly if your swim's first thing in the morning. If you've eaten adequately the day before, you should have enough glycogen in your system to last you for two hours of moderate hard exercise and that's what your morning swim is going to be and even if it's a really hard session it's probably only going to be maybe a third of that session is going to be hard so you've still got plenty of glycogen so just eat adequately the night before so that's about planning and preparing in advance if you're cycling for longer than two hours then yes you probably do need to take something with you to consume it's your choice how you take it Take it in the form of a sports drink if you prefer. Take it in a gel or an energy bar. Maybe just make up some flapjack or some rice cakes with savoury rice cakes with a bit of egg and ham um, or some some vegetables and, and salt and maybe some, uh, maybe some coconut oil in there for some fats. Maybe have some sweet ones with sultanas and coconut flakes. Okay, but you can make your own ride nutrition. And for longer than two hours, then yes, um, I think you probably should be taking some nutrition. If you're going out for a long run, and I'd say probably longer than 90 minutes, but again, it depends whether you're fat adapted, you might be able to get away without taking anything. You probably do want to take with you a small water bottle 
just to keep you reasonably hydrated. Although, uh, again, you know, unless it's super hot and you and you're training in in really hot and humid conditions in the UK, um, at any time apart from the highest temp highest temperature days in summer, it's unlikely you're going to get dehydrated from a 90 minute run unless you're already starting the run dehydrated. So again, that comes down to planning and preparation. In the middle of winter, you could probably just have a small water bottle to just just keep you keep your mouth moist as much as anything. If you're going to take some nutrition, then here solid food's probably going to be more difficult. So you might want a gel, or you might want a little bit of um, carbohydrate mix in a small water bottle that you're carrying with you. But that's about it. And after both that cycling. Uh, long cycle and that long run if you've got food prepared and ready for you when you come back in you're going to be able to fuel back up very very quickly so again that comes back loops back around to planning and preparation there are times when you might need to be a bit more thoughtful about what you consume during training sessions and this might be an occasion where you do want to have something during that morning swim if you have double training days and you have another session or if you have triple training days like I know some people do. So you're going from morning session, going to work, then you've got a lunchtime session and then maybe you're riding home in the evening. You may need to be consuming calories during those training sessions just to keep your calorie intake up because if you're relying on meals in between sessions, then they're going to have to be quite large to, to cover the debt and then they might not be digested by the time you do the next session. Okay, so that's one caveat. But most of the time you can fuel adequately by planning what food you need around workouts and then preparing in advance. Now, carbohydrates and training. And I talked about carbohydrates not being the enemy and being your friend. I've tried the low carb, high fat approach. I haven't gone keto. I'll come on to keto and, and endurance training in a moment. But I have tried low carb, high fat. It worked okay for me. I know some people say it can't work, but it worked okay for me. And I'd say if it worked okay for me and I didn't get ill, I didn't feel underfueled, I didn't end up in an energy deficit, then I don't think you can argue with that. And I can't argue with anybody else who says it works for them. But what I did learn was if I was going to be doing carbohydrate demanding sessions, like a heavy interval session, um, running or cycling or a long hard swim session or a long hard bike, then I needed to cycle my carbohydrates around my training. I needed to up my carbohydrate intake in the 24 hours before and during to sort of fuel the next sessions and after to make sure I was adequately, adequately recovered. However, once you've done that, you, let's say you come back from your morning Sunday morning cycle, you've ridden for four hours, you've burnt through quite a lot of fat and carbohydrate, you have your lunchtime meal, you have a heavier carbohydrate content to that meal you've fueled up adequately there's no need to have another high carbohydrate meal later on in the day you've done your refueling then it's just going to go and be stored around your body and that's how we store extra body fat by over consuming carbohydrates and consuming the wrong type okay now there's also another caveat here. If you're somebody who does 20 to 30 hours of training, sometimes it's not possible to get your food in from eating salads and um, protein and real carbohydrates in the form of sweet potatoes or um, wholemeal rice or whatever. Sometimes you're going to have to get quick 
high calorie um, concentrated foods. I accept that. There's going to be times when you probably need some ice cream or something that's got a higher level of, or some chocolate or something. Okay. But again, if you plan and prepare in advance, you can still make sure that you're getting quality calories in. What I would say is the old days when we used to consume just calories from carbs in every single meal is just gone. I don't I don't think we should ever be going back to that level. It was, it was just unnecessary. And I think most people who were around doing triathlon in the 80s and 90s will remember that and sort of think back to how all of the articles in the triathlon magazines were all about carb this and carb that. Um, I think we've gone past those days now and we're a bit smarter. Finally, then, let's talk about fad diets, right? So on the choice of your nutrition philosophy, I'm agnostic. I'm not bothered if you're a vegan or a vegetarian, as long as you don't call out everybody else for not following your philosophy. If you want to follow a high-carb diet, that's fine. But, you know, just be certain about what and why you're doing it. If you want to follow a carnivore diet, fine as long as you understand what you're doing and you're getting adequate nutrition. I'm not going to argue with that if it's working for you. But these are some of my observations. Plant-based diets can work really well. And I appreciate that these days there is a more ecological and ethical concern about where our food comes from and how it gets to us. And if we're, about, if we're about saving the planet, then we might want to choose a plant-based eating philosophy. I get that. It's not for everybody. Some people find it difficult to eat lots of fiber in the form of plants because it just makes their stomach condition worse. So they have to find something that's different. I think vegan is more challenging than vegetarian. For both, I would say that if you are going to transition to this, you need to do some solid research around quality protein sources. And I think you need to do that before you head into that um, plant-based realm. Because once you get in there and you're like, ah, oh, yeah, um, I'm not getting enough protein and now I need to uh, need to find what works for me. Um, there's going to be two or three weeks more of transition. So before you transition to a plant-based diet, think about how you're going to get that 1.5 to 2 grams of protein per kilogram of body weight. That's a lot of beans. That's a lot of it's a lot of uh, cheese or eggs or whatever way. And if you're vegan, that's a lot of something else that's not dairy. I've seen many people switch also from what I'd call a normal mainstream Western diet to a vegan diet, but continue to eat vegan shit. Right? Just because it's vegan, it doesn't mean it's healthy. It just means it's vegan. It's not. It's not animal based. All right. So be careful about the source of your vegan food. If you want to listen to um, three very well-educated, knowledgeable and mindful vegans talk about this and some of these problems, then I'll put a link to the podcast I did with Jack Maitland, Kirsten Stefferson and Louisa Holmes, the White Witch, who all very successfully follow this plant-based diet and give some great advice. Eating meat then. And again, if you're one of the people who are following the plant-based diet, and I'm not going to talk about carnivore, right? Please don't switch off and think that I'm a heretic. I'm an open-minded person, and you should be too. So I feel it's okay to talk about other diets. It's okay to talk about the carnivore diet, all right? So please don't be closed-minded on this next bit. Eating meat is not a sin, nor is it a problem. 
What is a problem perhaps is the wanton waste of, of meat because we eat the best cuts and we don't eat the rest of it. But I think that if you follow a carnivore diet, and I know some people do, going back to the people who can't eat as many vegetables, so they have to eat more meat and they, they like the taste of meat, and I say that's not a sin, then it's important to know how your meat is farmed. Is it farmed ethically? All right? Where your meat is sourced, how it's looked after. And can you as an individual eat nose to tail rather than just eating the best cuts? That might be the way to go. Don't want to waste stuff. So some people might want to follow a carnivore diet. There's a couple of books about it, the carnivore code and the carnivore diet. If you're interested and if you're a a plant-based diet eater, maybe it's interesting for you to just find out how the other half thinks and lives then I'll put links to those in the show notes. If you're interested in following a more carnivore diet and being mindful about how this um, impacts on the environment, then please read that. Keto. I've heard a lot of people say, yeah, I'm, I'm doing keto or I want to do keto. And again, I go back to that phrase that's actually, it's not my phrase. I've stolen it from Dr. Tommy Wood, who'll be on the podcast again very soon. Uh, He was on a few months, uh, maybe a year ago. I'm not sure he uttered this phrase then, but I'll get him to talk about it in the next podcast. And he said, like I've said, if you're following something that's working for you, how can I argue with that? However, keto and endurance athletes. Keto is very restrictive in terms of what you can eat. True keto is about 5% carbohydrates. In the long term, it can be very challenging. You've got a very limited amount of foods you can eat and a lot of people just can't stick with that in the long term for more than a few months. I do understand that keto can help you to lose weight. I'll come back on to weight loss in a moment. But the, mo- the, the most of the people that I know that have followed keto in the long term have arrived at keto because they had a medical condition which meant that they needed to eat in that particular way and if they went back to their normal previous way of eating that would complicate life medically for them and because they don't want to do that the alternative of having a very restrictive keto diet just keeps them alive longer in basic terms starting a keto diet while you're training for triathlon may also lead to too much stress and when you change something about your what you're doing to your body, whether you're taking a more exercise or changing the type of exercise you do or change to a different diet, it's a stress on your body and you need time to adapt. So if you're training for triathlon and you're doing 10 or 12 or 14 hours, so it doesn't matter whether you're doing Ironman or standard distance or what, but if you're doing 8, 10, 12 hours of training a week, that's a lot. I know in triathlon we've normalized that volume of training, but for most other sports, would that's that's huge and most sports scientists and coaches would consider triathlon to be an extreme endurance event anything that's longer than an hour is an extreme endurance event so we've normalized high volumes of training but if you're doing a high volume of training and then you switch to a keto diet you may find that that is too much stress for your body and you get ill you end up in an energy deficit because you're not sure about where your food source is coming, just not eating enough, and then you can't recover from training and you get ill or injured, right? And that's not going to be helpful to you and your long-term ambitions. So 
if you are thinking of going down the keto road, my suggestion to you, and I'm not the first one to suggest this, is that you ease back on your training for a few months and maybe just do, you know, four or five hours a week. So that's maybe one 30 to 40 minute session a day to maintain your fitness. And then you get used to the keto diet and then you slowly introduce more training and building up your um, quantity of calories consumed. Now, you can choose to ignore that advice if you want, but remember who's going to suffer if it all goes wrong. It's not going to be me. Um, my own personal view, and again, I know this is supported by quite a lot of the nutrition experts, is that keto and endurance sports for the majority of people is not a particularly good fit. Okay, now I'm, I'm prepared to get shot down here because there'll be people listening who go, yeah, I've been following keto for, for, for four years and it's perfect for me. And I go back to my previous comment. That's great. If it's working for you, that's fine. But what we only hear of is the one person who says it's doing great for them. And we don't hear from the hundred people who tried it, who fell apart after three months. All right. So if you're out there, why don't you come on as well and tell me that it was disastrous for you? One final thing. This was in the book Burn, which I'll put a link to in the podcast. They looked at all the diets. They looked at them in the long term. They looked at the amount of weight that was lost through following each diet. And what they found was that no diet came out as a clear winner. They all led to weight loss and they all led to pretty similar weight loss. So when somebody says, I switched to plant-based and I lost loads of weight, that's because you were more mindful about the food you were eating. You were being more choosy. Instead of opening your mouth and just putting it in like a garbage can, you thought, no, I can't eat that, but I can eat this. The same as when you were on the keto diet. You're like, oh, no, I'm not allowed to eat that carbohydrate. I've got to eat more than this. Or you were on the carnivore diet and you're like, I can't eat those veggies or I can't eat that carb, so I'm going to eat this. Right? Whatever diet you're on has, has a specific set of guidelines of things you can eat and things you shouldn't be eating. And so you're more mindful of what you're eating. And that leads to the weight loss. Okay? Mindfulness leads to weight loss. In the long term, there's no clear winner Often, everything leads to some weight loss when you change, but it's just the mindfulness and being more precise about what you're eating. But the bottom line is, if you're aiming to lose weight while training for triathlon, why not just try getting the basics right first and focusing and thinking about what you're eating rather than just putting stuff in your gob because you think, I do two hours of training a day and I deserve it. Okay, that's it for today. Next time, I'm going to be talking about mobility and strength. If you've got any comments about anything I've said today, whether you agree or disagree, why don't you post them in the Facebook page and we can have a proper debate. Remember, I'm open-minded, but I'm only interested in getting into debates with other people who are open-minded as well. I don't want somebody to come on and just shout at me because they think I've got a different opinion to them. The world is all about having debate and opinion. It's not about binary ideas and it's black or white. We have to see the other side. So if you don't like what I've said, that's fine. I understand that. I think I've explained often enough in this podcast that I'm open-minded to everybody's approach. So feel free to engage in the debate. So thank you for joining me on this week's show. I've mentioned a lot of things that I'll put links in 
in the discussion topics in the show notes below. I really appreciate you listening to the High Performance Human podcast each week. If you haven't already, then please join the conversation today by subscribing for free on iTunes so that you never miss any more episodes. And please also join our High Performance Human podcast Facebook page. Okay, so that's all for this week. I'll be back in seven days' time with part two in the series where we talk about mobility and strength. But for now, please remember that being a high-performance human is a journey. So stay healthy, stay focused, and keep trying to be a little bit better than yesterday.